quotation is taken from Mark chapter 5, uh, verses 21, right down to verses, verse 43. Mark chapter 5, so would you please turn your Bible with me to Mark chapter 5, verse 21 to 43. This passage is known as the Markan Sandwich. Because there are two stories in one. This narrative has two stories, two miracles, two healing. And the main story has to do with a leader in the synagogue named Jairus and his 12-year-old daughter who dies and is brought back to life. But the story of Jairus' daughter is actually wrapped around another story. The story of a hemorrhaging woman who touches Jesus' garment and is also healed. So it's a Markan sandwich. It's not side by side, two miracles, but one is sandwiched with the other. And bearing in mind that we, what, how we define sandwich is what is in the middle. Or ham sandwich or egg sandwich is what is in the middle. And so it is in the middle one that we will focus on a bit later on. So verse 21 onwards, let me read to you this passage. It's a beautiful passage. Uh, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had and yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. 
why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told him, which is Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and they went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talita kum, which means little girl or sweet girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. As we read through this passage, I'm sure you spot some similarities between these two accounts. Both are stories of a female restored by Jesus' touch, a younger woman and a more mature woman. Both of the women are addressed by Jesus as daughter or little girl, a very intimate term. Both the duration of the women's illness and the age of the daughter was given as 12 years old. Same. Both also have scoffers who laugh at what Jesus was doing. The first one was the disciple in verse 31, and then the second one was the, in verse 40, the professional mourners. Both instances, Jesus comes into contact with someone who is unclean. According to the ritual of the day, the hemorrhage woman is unclean, and so is touching a dead young girl. But in both cases, it is not Jesus becomes unclean, but Jesus makes the unclean clean. So you can see the similarities between these two accounts. Let me give you two uh, points to, as an outline of my sermon this morning. Uh, two people of faith and two kinds of faith. Two people of faith and two kinds of faith. So let me begin with the uh, first point, that, uh, two people of faith. Verse 21 says, When Jesus crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Jesus was on the west side of Galilee, as, and he just crossed over to the east side. East side has more Gentiles and more crowded, whereas west side more Jews and substantial crowd as well. And then we are told that one synagogue leader by the name of Jairus uh, came to Jesus. Synagogue rulers, they are lay people. They are not uh, uh, a full-time kind of uh, priest or anything like that. They were lay people. They were not paid professional. He was kind of like a chairman or the president of the synagogue in charge more of the administrative side of the synagogue. And generally, they are more well-to-do and they are very pious as well. 
So the name was given, uh, Jairus. Uh, here is someone, a parent in anguish. It says here in verse 23 that he fell at Jesus' feet and he pleaded earnestly with him. Pleaded earnestly. Some versions say pleaded fervently or implore him earnestly or beg Jesus again and again. Here is a parent in anguish. I remember a number of years ago in uh, South Korea, there was a ship capsized while traveling from Incheon to Jeju Island. And 304 people died uh, when the ferry capsized. And out of the 304, 250 students, aged between 15 and 17, was making a school excursion trip to Jeju Island, and the ferry capsized, and 250 of the students died. And I remember reading about one of the students' father writing and saying this. She said, the most traumatic things for me is when my daughter actually was talking to me on the phone, yelling and screaming as the water started to seep in, Dad, help me, help me, help me, Dad, I don't know what to do, Dad. And he said that I'm sitting in the comfort of my house, room, and I was completely paralyzed and powerless to do anything about it. And, and that, that voice and screaming of the background will stay with me for the rest of my life. That my daughter, my beautiful, wonderful daughter, was asking and screaming for help. And I, as a father, are not able to do anything at all because I was miles away from the disaster. And here is a bit like Jairus. He was desperate because the 12-year-old daughter was very ill and probably about to die. And here he came to Jesus begging for help. And then, interestingly, Jesus said, yes, I'll come with you. And then the story, as they were, he was, Jesus' ministry was interrupted by Jairus. And now, Jesus dealing with the Jairus are interrupted again by this woman. I used to go to a mechanic in, in Box Hill, but I stopped now, simply because when I drive there, he will come and talk to you. And then when another customer comes, he will ask you to wait and he'll go to the next customer. And then when the next customer talk to the next customer, and then another car comes, you ask the customer to wait and he will see the next and you just go on. And then he has to backtrack after that. I say, hey, I'm here first. Uh, Jesus is a bit like that. He was going with uh, Jairus and now he was interrupted by this woman who the scripture tells us uh, he had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She has suffered a great deal. She has seen many doctors. She spent all she had, and yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And so she kind of came to Jesus and just said, if I could just touch his clothes, I will be healed. I don't know what is her belief. The Scripture didn't tell us about what it was her orthodoxy. It could be a very superstitious faith. We don't know. But all that we are recorded in this account is that she heard, she came, and she touched Jesus, believing that by doing that, she would be healed. She was also a person with, in, in very 
severe kind of very desperate and run out of every means. And therefore, they saw Jesus. He heard about Jesus. She heard, she came, and she touched, and she was healed. And here in verse 30 was a very strange uh, verse that people kind of have issue with. Jesus somehow realized the power had gone up from him. And then he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? Jesus knew that the power gone out from him. Just imagine if you're 35 years old, during this lockdown, you're doing kind of on the, doing bench press at home. One, two, three. And then maybe you're uh, a 15, 20 months old little boy, crawl into the room, and unbeknowing to you, hop onto the right side of your, your weight. And as you push, oh, it's a bit heavier. But you knew. You straight away, you will know that the power gone up from you because you've got to exert more in a sense. So Jesus knew. He, he knew the power has gone up of Him. And He asked, He said, Who touched my clothes? Now, we must, I think it would be very unwise of us to think that Jesus really doesn't know who touched His clothes. Uh, remember in Genesis, uh, when Adam heard the sound of the Lord God as He was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Remember that? And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden and, and the Lord called to the man, Where are you? Where are you? It's not in any way implying that God doesn't know where uh, Adam was. Or in this instance, it would be very unwise for us to think that Jesus actually really doesn't know uh, who touched his clothes. Uh, we've got to understand that the point is that sometimes the question asked is to force an answer from the person. The idea is to force the person to come forward. And that is what Jesus was trying to do. And yet, if you see in verse 31, the disciples was, uh, verse 32 and 33, uh, Jesus was, I mean, the disciples was a little bit rude in a sense. You see the, the people crowding around you and you ask who, who touched you. There are so many people pressing on you. I mean, how do we know? Which one are you referring to? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. Same as Jairus, fell at his feet. Both came to Jesus, very humble, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. And Jesus simply said to her, look her in the eyes, and said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. When the woman acknowledged and came before Jesus, she is met with compassion rather than reproach. Sometimes our disturbance, you know, uh, we can find annoying at times, especially when you're focusing on doing something. Uh, but Jesus always... Uh, Show compassion. Uh, it reminds me of Abraham Joshua Heschel, one of the Jewish authors, one of the finest 
Jewish scholar, he said, when faith is completely replaced by creed, worship by discipline, love by habit, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain, when religion speaks only in the name of authority rather than with the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. Its message becomes meaningless. And so Jesus knows his message is always couched with compassion. And he said, rather than uh, uh, rebuke her, anything like that, she, she is met with compassion and not with reproach. And that is where we get the significance of the question that Jesus asked. Who touched me? Who touched me? Jesus wants to, the answer. Why? Simply because this woman, she wants a power encounter. She will be happy to just come and touch and receive the power and get well and then that's it. And many people probably have done that. Jesus could just walk away, good on you, you know, you've been healed. Jesus won. This is precisely Jesus doesn't want. The woman wants a power encounter, but Jesus wants a personal encounter. The woman wants a miracle, but Jesus wants a meeting with her. The woman wants the answer to her problem, but Jesus wants to confront her with respect to her faith. Many years ago, uh, Martin Buber in the 60s, uh, Austrian Jewish philosopher, famous for his philosophy of dialogue, which is a, a form of existentialism, uh, he, he famously wrote this book about I-it and I-thou relationship. I have an I-it relationship with my iPad. I have an I-it relationship with my car. I have an I-it relationship with this church, the building in a sense, is an I-it relationship. But I have an I-thou relationship with my wife. I have an I-thou relationship with my siblings. I, I have an I-thou relationship with Pastor Caroline, with Kit Ted, and with you as a church member belongs to this church. I have an I-thou relationship. You know, there are many people only want to have an I-it relationship with God. God is the big power source. He's a great genie. I wrap it and then, you know, uh, He will just supply what I want. He's a supplier and He's constantly enabling me, me to get or do what I want or what I want to do. And so He's only seeking after His blessing. I-it type of relationship. But God wants an I-thou relationship, not an I-it relationship. And that is why the greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. It is an I-thou relationship that God wants. It is a whole personal being encounter with the all-knowing, powerful presence God. So it is why Jesus looked around and said, Who touched me? Because Jesus wants an I-thou relationship. 
in the kingdom of God, miracles are not an end to themselves. As I mentioned in my, the other sermon, uh, it is a sign. They lead to meeting with God. It's not an end in itself. And discipleship is not merely meeting your needs. It is about growing a relationship with Him and following Him on His terms. Back to Jairus. That's why I said a sandwich, right? Back to Jairus, back to the piece of bottom bread now. Back to Jairus. And while Jesus was still speaking, some people came in verse 35 and said, your daughter is dead. Don't have to ask this teacher to come anymore. He, he, she's dead, gone. And I think this is, this is, in some sense, essentially what discipleship is all about, isn't it? When circumstances seem dire and hopeless, uh, what do you do? The challenge to discipleship is always to trust Christ, even in the midst of loss or horrible suffering. I love this poem. I read before many times. I think it's good to read it again. It said, Though my body be broken and pain does abound, though my life lay in pieces all around, though my loved ones reject me and they all put me down, though my children refuse my counsel and believe me but a crown, though my God does not hear me, He makes not a sound, though my prayers go unanswered and lie upon the ground, though Satan assaults me and pursues me like a hound, Though my mind is due pressured and I feel as I'm about to drown. Though my strength is fading and my heart begins to pound. Though winds blow against me and darkness all surrounds. Though my faith is so tested, it must be found sound. For I am determined not to let go, but cling to the promises I have found. It's a test of discipleship when everything fell apart. And that's where Jairus' faith came in. He said, verse 36, Jesus said, ignoring what they said, Jesus said, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And then he went with Peter, James, and John on the inner circle of disciples, the three of them out of the twelve, and out of the three, the the one that's closest to Jesus is, of course, Peter. And then when Jesus arrived at the home of Jairus, he saw a commotion. They have professional mourners there. It's very common in the Asian culture. Uh, professional mourners, the louder you cry, the better. And you're the paid people to do that, to generate a, an environment of mourning, in a sense. And, uh, and they were laughing at it. Jesus said, why, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. And they laugh at him. All these professional men, they laugh at him. And Jesus went in and uh, uh, asked the parents and the three disciples, five of them, plus Jesus, six of them, went in and took her by the hand and simply just said to her, sweet girl, I say to you, get up. Little girl, get up. And she got up. Two people of faith, and let me just move down to point number two. two. Two kinds of faith. Two kinds of faith here. We see the similarities. And now I want to see you the, the contrast. 
Jairus was named, but not a woman with a hemorrhage. She's an unknown woman. We don't know her name. Jairus was a man of standing in the community, but a woman was anything but good standing. Jairus was appealing for another, which is his daughter, but this woman was appealing for herself. Jairus approached Jesus respectfully from the front, but this woman came from behind secretly, hoping to do no more than just touch his clothes and remain unknown. Jairus was desperate, but bold. Whereas the woman was desperate, but frightened, and in some sense, ashamed. So the contrast between these two little stories are many. Rich, poor, powerful, powerless, ask for healing, takes the healing without asking, 12-year-old girl with an acute and sudden illness, and a 12-year-old chronic illness in a grown woman. A girl who is touched by Jesus and raised from the dead, and a woman who touches Jesus, who is healed while still very much alive. So in some sense, both receive healing, but it is quite clear that these two stories are very, very different. And yet, at their very core, at their most profound level, they are the very same story. They are the stories of two people who, when they came in contact with Jesus, were transformed from death to life. But I just want to point out to you that at the end of the day, it was this woman's faith that Jesus commended. It was this woman's faith that Jesus commended. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Yet Jairus was a, has a faltering faith in some sense and that needed to be propped up. Prop up. Don't be afraid. Jairus, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Don't be afraid. And let, me, let this mean to say that the validity of faith depends on the truthfulness of what is believed. Faith is not kind of conjure up, force yourself to believe in something that is not, not true. Scripture always says that the validity of faith depends on the truthfulness of what is believed. It turns on the truthfulness of the object of faith. And our faith is in Jesus. So the object of faith is Jesus. The truthfulness of Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the famous passage about resurrection, Paul says this in verse 12, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then, he, then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And then in verse 19, he closes off with this. 
say, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all of all people most to be pitied. If your hope is only here on this life and not beyond, then you are all of all people most to be pitied. So faith is, depends on the truthfulness of what is believed. Faith is a God-given ability to perceive certain things that are true and to trust your whole life to them. The Bible never suggests that we believe in something that is not true. Just prop up your faith and just is depending on you in a sense. That is not faith. It is presumption. It is stupidity or gullibility. But that is not faith. Uh, there's a quote by Graham Goldworthy. He's an Australian uh, uh, scholar, Old Testament and biblical theology scholar, and it has a great influence in the, in the Anglican movement in New South Wales in Sydney. He says this, he said, Biblical faith can be illustrated by considering the faith we would need when about to drive a vehicle across a rickety-looking bridge. We would not ask, have I, have I got enough faith to just drive through this, this hoping that this bridge will, will hold, hold the, the weight of the car? He said, no, 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 no. He said, rather the appropriate question is, can this bridge actually take the load? Once we can answer in the affirmative, the question about faith vanishes. Faith is just there because of what we perceive about its object. And when faith is lacking, the antidote is not introspective self-examination, but contemplation of the object of our faith. Jesus, the Lord, our sufficient Saviour. So true faith for a Christian means paying attention to Jesus and concluding that He is who He claims to be. And that is why uh, New Testament account plays so much emphasis on the truthfulness of eyewitnesses' account to say this is the true things. I draw to you two passages. Don't have to turn to it. I'll just read to you. Two passages. Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. Luke, the physician, undertook to write this gospel. He said, verse 1, Many have undertaken to draw an account of the things that have been made among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses, again, and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Again, they, they place emphasis on the truthfulness of his eyewitnesses' account. And then another text that I want to read to you is 1 John chapter 1, uh, the first four verses. 1 John chapter 1. Look at John at the ripe old age of 90, maybe, you know. He says this, he says, verse 1, he said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. 
and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. You see the certainty of that? Of Jesus. It is the faith of the women which in this narrative that was cast most positively and not the faith of Jairus. Remember I thought about sandwich? It is the sandwich, the middle one, that, distinct, that defines that. It is not only faith in Jesus, which is reliable and trustworthy, but there's something more. When we compare this woman with Jairus, she has no name, no standing, no security. She is ashamed. She dares not approach Jesus boldly. And she comes to him frightened. Did you see that this precisely is the kind of faith that Jesus commanded? This is precisely the kind of faith that Jesus commanded. I don't know, maybe your situation is also similar. How can I trust Christ? And I want to tell you, and I want to challenge you, that if a broken, disgraced, fearful, frightened woman in, that, in the first century has a faith commanded by Jesus, then you are welcome to come and trust Christ with that kind of faith. For the faith that is commanded here in this double account is faith that is not only desperate but broken. It is not the faith of the strong, but it is the faith of the weak. It is not the faith of the respected, but the faith of the disgrace. It is not the faith of the bold, but it is the faith of the frightened. For this too is bound up with the object of faith, Jesus himself. And he came as the doctor comes for the sick. He came as the strong comes for the weak. He came for the broken, the bruised, and the guilty. He doesn't want you to walk past and just draw from His power, suck some forgiveness, and then move on. No, no, no. As you bow before Him, as you trust Him, as you cry heavenward, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, you may hear a small voice saying, who touched me? It is the voice of the Master. And he asked that question, not because he doesn't know. He asked the question because he wants an I-Thou relationship. God's own Messiah, God's own agent in creation, God's own King of the universe. He wants to know, he wants to forgive, and he wants to empower the broken, the bruised, the needy, the frightened and the desperate. And that is the kind of faith when we come to God that He, Jesus, commanded. Recorded in Mark Gospel thousands of years later. The simple women's faith. Let me close with this. Let me read to you this poem. Say, when I say I'm a Christian, 
He said, when I say I'm a Christian, I'm not shouting I'm saved. I'm whispering I get lost. That is why I chose this way. When I say I'm a Christian, I don't speak of this with pride. I'm confessing that I stumble and need someone to be my guide. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm not trying to be strong. I'm professing that I'm weak and pray for strength to carry on. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm not bragging of success. I'm admitting I have failed and cannot ever pay the debt. When I say I'm a Christian, I'm not claiming to be perfect. My flaws are too visible. But God believes I'm worth it. When I say I'm a Christian, I still feel the sting of pain. I have my share of heartaches, which is why I seek His name. When I say I'm a Christian, I do not wish to judge. I have no authority. I only know I am loved. So may you come to Jesus with that kind of faith, simple faith of trusting in the object of your faith with the truthfulness of who Jesus is. And give your heart to Jesus and serve Him faithfully. Why don't you bow your heads together in prayer? Sad girl, do not lose hope. Please believe that there are a thousand beautiful things waiting for you. Sunshine comes to all who feel range. Lord, we are reminded of the English proverbs that say the darkest hours are just before dawn. Light is coming. Sun is rising. Hope is coming. When we put our faith in you, the object of our faith, not faith in faith, but faith in Jesus. The object of our faith is true. Jesus, Son of God, Savior of the world, came to us, died on the cross, redeem us, forgive us, embrace us, love us, welcome us into the kingdom. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this beautiful story of a woman. Simple faith, trusting in Jesus, and she was healed. May we come to you humbly because we know that that's the kind of faith that you want. That's the kind of faith that is accepted. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. We worship you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. Thank you, Lord. May you, in spite of your mistakes and mishaps, see how God's love and provision more than cover you. Uh, may you, in your weakness, experience abounding grace that makes you divinely strong. Where you have experienced loss and brokenness, may you know healing, wholeness, and redemption. Your Redeemer is with you, is for you, and He is strong. May you experience this shalom peace today and always. Amen.